May God add his blessing to the reading of the scripture this morning, and may the words from my mouth be just what we need to hear. There was a Catholic priest who was very hard of hearing, and so members of his parish, he would have them write out their sins on a piece of paper for confession. And one day, a parishioner in the confessional booth slipped a piece of paper to the priest, and he looked at it, and it said, two loaves of bread, a gallon of milk, and a pound of bananas. Well, the priest read it, and he passed it back, and he said, I think you gave me the wrong slip. And he said, oh, no, that means I left my sins at the grocery store. (laughs) Well, where do we leave our sins? How can we get rid of our sins forever? This is Lent. This is a good time to think about things such as this. The answer is repent. Do like the prodigal son did. Turn around. Go back home. He turned around and he went back home. This is a story, yes, of repentance and a story of forgiveness and a story of grace. But this is also a story of self-righteousness, resentment, a story of anger. It has a very familiar beginning. There was a man who had two sons. So there are three characters in this story. I'd like to talk this morning for a minute about each of these characters. First of all, there is the prodigal son. He is the younger boy. He's adventurous. He's rebellious. He's determined to learn life's lessons by making his own mistakes. And many of us can relate to this young man because we've either been there or we've had children who have been this type. And in Jesus' story, the younger son says to his father, Dad, give me my share of the estate now. I don't want to wait. And so his father divides up the property between the two, and the younger one leaves and heads out to a distant country and squanders all of his money, wasted and wild living. After all of his money is gone, there's a famine, a great famine in the land, and he's in trouble. Like everyone else, he's hungry. So he hires himself out to a local farmer, and the farmer sends him out into the fields to feed the pigs. And then it says that he would, he's so hungry that he would gladly eat the pods that the pigs were being fed, but they didn't even offer him that. So he had very little or nothing to eat. And then finally, Luke says, he comes to himself. I think the version that uh, Lauren read for us this morning said he comes to his senses. He heads back home. He's hungry. He's hurting. Now, you might ask the question, was he really sorry for what he had done? Or was he sorry he ran out of money? Was he just acting so that he could get back into his father's good graces? We don't know. Since this is a parable, not a real-life story, we just don't know. But we imagine, we'd like to think that he's heading home for the right reason. Or maybe not. Maybe you've known a young person who has become involved with drugs. Not necessarily a young person, but a person. The first thing to go is truthfulness. Lies begin to come out of their mouths. Many parents today know what it is to have a child who is addicted to drugs and have them come back home, say they're sorry. I've heard this story many times in the past five years. They say they're sorry, they promise to do better, 
And then they not only leave again, but on their way out the door, they steal some money or they steal some valuable property of their parents. And parents have asked me how many times, how many times am I supposed to allow this? How many times am I supposed to forgive? How many times do I let him or her come back home? Some prodigals repent many times, but they never really come back home. There's a story told of Larry the sad boy who repented 12 times in the Lutheran church, an all-time record. In eight years' time, he threw himself weeping and contrite at the front of the church. Twelve different occasions he did this. This was a Lutheran church. They didn't have altar calls. There was no minister calling them to come forward while the choir played and sang or hummed just as I am without one plea. Larry just came forward at some point during the service on 12 different occasions, weeping buckets of tears and crumbled up into a pile by the communion rail. And it, it was to the amazement of the minister who on one occasion remembers just preaching, having gotten done preaching a very dry sermon on stewardship. And yet there was Larry. And so he would put his arm around Larry and pray with him and see if he needed to ride home. Twelve times. Twelve conversions. Well, this minister said that it seemed to him that that was too many. There comes a point where you should dry your tears and join the building and grounds committee or another team and help deal with the problems of the church furnace or the church roof or make fellowship coffee next Sunday morning or serve in some other way. But Larry just kept on repenting and repenting. Now let's assume the young man in Jesus' story is really and truly sorry. He's learned some hard lessons, but he's back home now. Most of all, he's learned how lonesome it can be when you turn your back on the people who love you and care about you the most. He's headed home. He's done wrong. He's repented. Now he is headed for the safety of his father's house. The prodigal is the first character in this story. The second character is the father. The young man has practiced what he's going to go, say to his father. He says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to say to him, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I'm really sorry. Can I at least have a job being one of your hired servants? And so he did. But as we know, his father saw him from a ways off and ran with joy and grabbed his son and hugged him and kissed him and got him. And, and he first of all said, Father, I have sinned against you. He said what he had planned on saying. He said, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father said, quick, get him a good robe. Put a ring on his finger. Sandals. All the privileges of being my son. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a feast. Let's party. For this son of mine was dead. I thought I'd never see him again. And now here he is. He's home. So they began to celebrate. This father, of course, represents God. God in all of his grace, in all of his love. Maybe this parable should be called the parable of the waiting father. 
not of the prodigal son, because it's mainly, though there are many lessons to be learned in this story, mainly about God's grace and forgiveness. There's a painting by Rembrandt, which is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. Some have called it the greatest picture that was ever painted. In Rembrandt's painting, based on this parable, the son has returned home after wasting his inheritance, and he kneeled, he's kneeled before his father in repentance. He's asking for forgiveness, and standing at his right is his older brother with his arms crossed in judgment and anger. But the most fascinating part about the painting is that the father's hands are unusual as he bends over to hug his son. It's been said that the hands of the father were one of the last things that Rembrandt painted before he died. You see, the father's left hand is a strong, masculine hand, the kind of hand that you would expect from a farmer, a hard worker, one who works outdoors and works with tools. But the right hand is much different. It's smaller. It's softer. It's more like a feminine hand of a woman. Think of the importance of one person, of that one person, but with noticeably different hands. One masculine, one feminine. Father Henry Nowen wrote in his book, Return of the Prodigal Son, he comments about that painting, and he says this, As soon as I recognized the difference between the two hands of the father, a new world of meaning opened up for me. The father is not just a great patriarch. He is a parent. He is a mother as well as a father. He touches the son with a masculine hand and a feminine hand. He holds. He caresses. He confirms and he consoles. He represents God. Fatherhood and motherhood are fully present. That gentle and caressing right hand reminds me of the words of the prophet Isaiah, where he said, Can a woman forget her baby at the breast, feel no pity for the child she has born? I thought of Father Nowen's words about this great painting when I read about Franklin Graham and his story about his own return home after living as sort of a prodigal. Now, most of you know who Franklin Graham is. He's the son of Billy Graham. And he tells this in his, his book, uh, Rebel with a Cause. He tells a story. Franklin was a rebel. In fact, he opposed every value and everything that his parents stood for, including the Christian faith. And they sent him off to college, spent a lot of money, and he managed to get himself kicked out of college. And then he writes this. The drive home from Texas was dreary. Maybe by driving slow, I was prolonging the inevitable. I would have to face my parents. I knew they had to be disappointed in me. I was. They had invested a lot of money in my education, and I'd messed it up and wasted it. I drove through the gate and started up the road to our home, imagining the lecture that I was going to get from my parents. So many other times when I had come home, I could hardly wait to say hello to everyone, but no joy this time. I felt so badly 
that when I finally reached the house and I saw Mama standing on the front porch, I wanted to run and hide in the nearest hole. It was one of the few times in my life when I can remember not wanting to look her in the eye. When I walked up to her, my body felt limp. I barely had the nerve to lift my head or extend my arms for a hug, but I didn't need to. Mama wrapped her arms around me, and with a smile, she said, welcome home, Franklin. He doesn't say what Dad said or did. Rembrandt knew that a gracious God could be portrayed as a parent of either gender, a loving mother or a loving father. There's been a long-running controversy in Christian circles and in churches about inclusive language, especially for the person of God. Is God a male? No, God is not a male. Is God a female? No, God is not a female. God is a spirit. Maleness and femaleness are characteristics of physical created beings. God has the best characteristics of both genders and does not hold either gender. Most important of all, God's character is one of unconditional love. Strong when strength is needed and ever so gentle when gentleness is needed. The perfect parent. Well, there's a third character in this story. It's the older brother. His story is quite different from the other. He didn't go into the far country. He stayed home. He did what was expected of him. He was obedient to a fault. But listen to how he responds when his brother returns. He says, after his, he wants to know what's going on because there's music and dancing and a party going on. And one of the servants says, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf. He's back home. Your dad's happy because he's home safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and pleaded with him. He said, look, I've slaved for you all these years. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property, taken all this money and wasted it on wild living, you kill the fatted calf for him when he comes home. Notice how he talks about his relationship with his father. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. Those are revealing words. Not working for you, not helping with the family farm, not taking care of this farm which will someday be mine. No, he says, I've been slaving for you. And then notice what he calls his brother. Not his brother. He says, but when this son of yours comes home, he can't even call him his brother. He's so angry. The father tries to set him straight. He says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But today, we should celebrate and be glad because your brother's back. We thought he was dead and now he's here. Notice that he reminds the older son, first of all, that the prodigal is his brother. 
Sometimes that happens when we're quick to condemn other people who've made mistakes. We forget that they are our brothers and sisters. And we sit in judgment and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like him. I'm glad I don't do what she does. And we forget all about the fact that they're still our brothers and sisters and that God still loves them just as much as he loves you or me. The older son has a cold, unforgiving heart for his, older, for his younger brother who has broken all the rules and for his father who welcomes his son back home. He's spiteful, he's angry, he's resentful. And some of us might understand that. We might wonder how God can forgive people to keep doing the same things over and over again. It's hard for us to see that Jesus sees hope in the prodigal rather than passing judgment, rather than the self-righteousness that his brother has. There's a message here for us. We sometimes read this story and we see the older brother as a minor character in the story. But Jesus may have meant for him to be one of the main characters or the main character. Remember who Jesus was telling this parable to. It's the religious leaders of his day. The first two verses of the chapter say, the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were listening too. And they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Shame on him. The story of the prodigal gives hope to the tax collectors and the sinners. But it also points out the attitudes and the actions of the scribes and the Pharisees and the people who were judging. And may I suggest that they are the older brother in Jesus' story, keeping the law but looking down at others, not as righteous as they are. And sadly enough, there are many that to them in our society today, that's what the church looks like. A place where, a place of judgment, a place where sin is frowned upon and the sinners are frowned upon also. And that's why they stay outside of our doors. One pastor began a message on the parable of the prodigal son like this. I have never known a time, and this was very recently, I have never known a time when Christians have been more mad about more things than we are right now. We're mad about values, we're mad about politics, we're mad about television, media, education, the violation of the unborn and criminals. We're shouting more, we're shooting at doctors at abortion clinics. Publicly, we are perceived to be long on madness and short on mercy. We Christians have become grumbling warriors instead of committed seekers. Boy, he said a mouthful. And these attitudes are making it harder and harder all the time for us as a, as a universal church, as a people of God, to reach other people with the gospel. Three characters. The returning prodigal, his loving and gracious parent representing God, and his smug, self-righteous brother. If you are the prodigal, come home. Get back into fellowship with other believers, attend church, study your Bible, online, whatever, but get back home. It's not too late. If you are the older brother, 
you need to come home too. Check your attitudes. Think about what God, how God feels about that prodigal. Come home to the waiting arms of the Father. Amen.